Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, today our subject is guns. And it's impossible to think about women and guns without taking a little trip back through time to visit old Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley, sharpshooter of the Wild West. Let's talk a little about her because she's pretty cool. She's very cool. She's barely a hair over five feet tall, and yet she could shoot your eye out. I know. And she she was very much a self-made woman, had a very hard childhood. Mm-hmm. Um her father died. Her mother had no money. And she realized that she had this skill taught to her bef- by her father before he died when she was six. So he was teaching a very young girl how to shoot a gun. Yeah. Um, but she realized she was really good at it. And so she started entering turkey hunts and she got banned because she was winning so many. And, you know, it's it, even then it was such a stereotypically male sport. Um, and she met a man named Frank Butler, who was assumed to be the greatest shot of all time. Mm-hmm. Old Annie just shoots him right off the stage. She shows him what's what. And Frank Butler actually ended up becoming Mr. Annie Oakley. True. Down the road. And uh as you all know, she was eventually hired for the Wild West show. And at that point, there were no other acts in the Wild West show that incorporated women. And Annie Oakley was so good... And of course, she was admitted to it. She rose to the top of the marquee, and you know, scholars who look at her life at that time say that it was a very unique marriage of the time because uh, Frank kind of took a backseat, became her manager, you know, scheduled appointments, took care of her guns, whereas Annie was sort of the star, went out, would would do all her fancy gun tricks, and had the starring role in the relationship. Yes, and while Annie Oakley was a very good shooter, she was also a very savvy marketer, because we should also note that this is during the Victorian era, and um, she had to carefully craft her image to appeal to largely male audiences and yet not alienate, you know, women and families. You know, she didn't want to become some sexy sharpshooter, mm-hmm. but at the same time, she wanted to take advantage of the fact that there were women in the audience. So she designed her costumes to be fairly form-fitting to show off her curves. And she was yet, an athlete. She was an athlete, and yet they were demure. They were, so she could sell as many tickets as possible. But, you know, scholars will look at that now and say that she knew she was in this very male sport. And so this was a way to make a female who was great at it more audience friendly so that Mm -hmm. a man wouldn't walk out just totally intimidated by this. And the woman wouldn't walk out being like, she's not a woman at all. She wanted to keep that feminine edge to her performances. Now, the interesting thing, too, is that during this time, it's also the beginning of the suffrage movement. And while Annie Oakley was very adamant about women, you know, learning how to shoot guns like she did, she taught plenty of women how to shoot. She thought it was a great thing. She did not speak out on behalf of the suffrage movement. She was opposed to it, from what we can tell. And it's just, it's very interesting because when wars started breaking out, she wrote to presidents and was like, I will train a squadron of women that we can send off to this war. But yet she didn't believe that women should have the right to vote. And there was a program on PBS a few years ago, The American Experience, which kind of dived into this contradiction in her beliefs. And 
Uh, one scholar thought it was a, a pretty crafty move if you think about what a great marketer she was. You mm-hmm. know, she was already breaking so many stereotypes that to come out as also for, for the right of women to vote just would have been too controversial, would have alienated her audience. And then the others were just kind of perplexed that it really was something that she should have been behind and wasn't. Yeah, someone so uh, groundbreaking professionally and yet so socially conservative. But speaking of being socially conservative, Molly, I think that this is a good time to point out that the point of this podcast today is not to go over pro-gun rights versus anti-gun rights, Second Amendment, etc. We're going to let, we'll let other people hash that out. We more want to dissect the this idea of women and guns, because while we have Annie Oakley, you know, back in the day, um, I think that it's fair to say that women and guns is kind of a difficult issue mm-hmm. because, uh, I don't know, I think there's a, a lot of cultural implications with the idea of a woman owning a gun. Um, a lot of times in public opinion polls, women will come out as far more anti-gun than men will. And at the same time, you know, there's this whole concept of, well, should we own guns anyway to protect ourselves? Is it the great equalizer? Right. We've got a lot of commentators that we're going to get into a bit later who say that gun ownership is a feminist issue. So we're going to figure out if there's any truth to that, why that argument can be made. And I think that if we're going to unpack this imagery of a woman with a gun, we've got to go back to ads of the late 1800s, early 1900s. This is sort of around when Annie Oakley is is a little bit at her peak. How did they sell guns to women at that point? It wasn't like, be like Annie Oakley. That is not the angle that these uh, advertisers took. Now, the idea of a woman and a gun back in the late 1800s and early 1900s was not revolutionary at all. It wouldn't have been controversial because, in fact, Molly, according to Laura Browder, who wrote a book about uh, women and guns and the history of women and guns, she points out that trap shooting was the first sport open to women on equal terms. It was marketed as something as female-friendly as, say, going shopping or dining out with your friends. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a lot of the ads take up that, you know, ordinariness of of a woman trap shooting so that the guns uh, are pictured with the women. Women are wearing clothes of the day, a skirt, a hat. They've killed a fox. It doesn't there's no mention in the ad copy of, hey, this woman's crazy. She shot a fox. It How was, revolutionary. It was, you know, it was the norm. So there was nothing special about this ad in terms of it having a woman in it. Yeah, and you would have gun ads even featuring little girls curled up with their guns and their hunting dog. You know, I mean, it was a, it was a gender-neutral activity. But then after the 1920s, and I, I would think along with World War One and World War Two, we see a shift in the advertising from guns in the hands of women to guns in the hands of men. And, you know, that makes sense. Men were the ones who were going to fight these wars. They were largely fought with guns. Uh, there were some ads from the time of World War One that showed a man teaching his wife how to use a gun while he was gone. So that's the first uh, example we have of guns as protection. But uh, by the time that World War II is over, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, we've got women not handling guns and ads at all. No, women and wives and mothers are more looking adoringly at their husband, their protector husband, 
and their sons who are, you know, either bringing home something that they just shot and killed that maybe she will dress and prepare for dinner. I don't know. Or um, there was an ad of a family on a picnic where the wives and mothers are setting out the food and the boys are off shooting, shooting BB guns or yeah. something. Um, now, in the 60s, we've got this idea perpetuated in the 50s of males being the ones who shoot things. Uh, so you're trying to sh- sell the guns to men, obviously. So in the 60s, you've got women in scantily clad attire with the gun. Yes, because if we've established the gun by this point as a man's toy, then it makes sense that savvy advertisers who want to attract men's attention to their merchandise just put it in the hands of a bikini-clad woman. A buxom lady. Yes. All right. In the 80s is the big turning point that will lead us into our conversation today. These are the first ads. Uh, they kind of echo the ones that were there in World War One. The first ads that say, if you want to protect your family, ladies, and of course you do because you're good mothers, or if you're a single woman and want to protect yourself, which of course you do because it's an unsafe world, then you need a gun for your own protection. Mm-hmm. And then into the early 1990s, the National Rifle Association really tries to brush up its image toward women and launches a magazine specifically for women called Women's Outlook. Um, and in its ads, trying to um, get more women into its ranks, it frames this idea of female gun ownership in abortion terms, which is kind of... An interesting marketing tactic. It is. And it has, you know, big pluses and big negatives, I think. But you often hear abortion described in terms of choice. And what they did is they took the exact same word, choice, and said, you need to have the choice to own a gun and protect yourself. It's it's claiming as much control over your body as the right to an abortion is. But since we generally associate guns and violence, uh, a number of people have said that, Making that correlation is very dangerous. Trying to make that relationship between, you know, choice of a gun, choice of an abortion is a tricky relationship to try to build. Now, critics of the, of this language, the way that these guns have been sold have said that, you know, gun manufacturers are only preying on a culture of fear, uh, that women are scared to go out alone. Women are scared to be attacked. Every man is a potential predator. Um, it really puts us in the position of being Victims, constant victims, which is why they would argue that gun ownership is a feminist choice Mm -hmm. uh, because you eliminate that victim status. But, you know, then you can it's can go in a continual circle about what made you feel like a victim in the first place. Was it a really scary gun ad? Um, But we'll get into that later. The question is, if they're going to sell us a gun for the purpose of protection, we've got to argue. We've got to see. Is it actually protecting us? Yes. And the statistics on this are divided, I think we could say. Some studies have come out saying, yes, absolutely, gun ownership lowers rates of violence. And other studies have said, absolutely not. If you own a gun, you are more likely to be shot by a gun. So we will look at both sides. First up, we've got Dr. John R. Lott, who did a pretty famous study about called More Guns, Less Crime. And he found that after states expand their right-to-carry law or loosen their gun uh, regulations and restrictions, there is less crime. For example, if uh, based on his data, if New York City had adopted a right-to-carry law in 1999, he estimated there would be 100 fewer murders a year, 300 fewer rapes, 
5,000 fewer aggravated assaults and 9,000 fewer robberies. And that was after the law had been in effect for five years. Yeah, he actually estimates an 84% drop in the rate at which multiple victim shootings occur once a state passes a right to carry law. And he thinks that women don't even have to know how to use their gun necessarily. It's just if if you are attacked and a woman shows a gun, that will be enough to make an attacker run away, give up. And uh, more recently in the New York Times, there was this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but along the same lines argument that if all women had guns, then there wouldn't be crime at all because, you know, if you're on, let's say, a subway and you're going to mug a woman... You know that every other woman on that train has a gun. So what what are your odds there? Well, and his point, the the point that Randy Cohen, who wrote this, was trying to make was uh, if you restrict gun ownership to women only, mm-hmm. then you will see crime rates drop drastically. Because first of all, um, if you look at homicides and crimes committed with guns, more often than not, overwhelmingly, it is a man who is perpetrating the crimes. And um, like you said, yeah, if men know that women are going to be packing heat, they are not going to come around. And lots saying that if, you know, if anyone on the street could have a gun, male or female, it's going to reduce the risk of someone else coming up with a gun and trying to overpower you. And can I just toss out a figure, please, from Cohen's blog, Molly, that kind of blew my mind a little bit? Give it to me. 200 million privately owned guns in the United States. Yeah. That we know of. So the big question is, for those 200 million people out there who own all those Berettas. Well, some people could own multiple guns. Oh, yeah. But for that, for those gun owners out there, I should say, are they more protected? Are they getting their money's worth? Yeah. So Lot would say yes. But we have a few studies, uh, one from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and one from the Violence Policy, Policy Center that would say no. Uh, the UPenn study found that people with a gun were 4.5 times more likely to be shot in an assault than those not possessing a gun. This is from a 2009 study. Uh, so they're saying that while it is possible to successfully defend yourself with a gun, more likely than not, uh, your chances of success are low. Because it seems like a lot of times if you're someone wielding a gun, you are automatically in more dangerous situations that is going to attract some kind of violence to you. And piggybacking off of that, the Violence Policy Center examined whether or not uh, women use handguns to as self-defense to kill people who are who are coming at them. And they say that that is a very rare occurrence. And that might be because a lot of times when women are murdered with guns, it is not by a stranger coming up to them on the street, kind of like with uh, with dating violence and things like that. It's actually someone they know, an intimate associate. Yeah. Uh, the statistic that kind of blew my mind from the Violence Policy Center, and obviously you can probably tell from the name that they probably have an agenda. Yeah. But based on the numbers they've come up with from all the states, in 1998, for every time a woman used a handgun to kill in self-defense, 101 women were murdered with a handgun. So they're saying that if your if your agenda is self-defense, then it's unlikely that you will be able to kill. It's more likely that you will be killed in the meantime. And that kind of makes sense. Like, let's say you're you're a single woman and you're bringing a gun into your house in terms of self-defense. If it, if it is true that you're more likely to be hurt by someone who you know, a boyfriend, mm-hmm. um, an ex-spouse, they probably know where the gun is. So yeah. that's the argument that the Violence Policy Center makes is if you are going to bring a gun in your home, 
consider whether it's actually going to be use, useful because it's more likely that it could be used against you. Well, and isn't it slightly ironic, though, that we are, you know, making the best case scenario of a woman murdering someone else who is... <laughs> Attacking her. I mean, it's still kind of like, I think that points out the diciness of this issue. It's like the lesser of two evils, I guess. Someone's still, someone's still dying either way. Yeah. You know? But you know, that's the thing that, you know, if we want to circle back to whether this is a great equalizer, some would argue that that man's not going to have those qualms that you just had, Kristen. If he wants to hurt you, he's going to hurt you. And the fact that we have to think twice about whether we'd want to hurt them, if that is the best case scenario, those critics would argue that that's an example of how we as women have been trained to think that guns are male and violence is male and we have no choice in the matter, that we are, you know, we are accepting our weaker sex position. Which is why I think we have to point out some people have said that guns should be a feminist issue. And this includes Megan McArdle, who writes in the Atlantic Monthly, and uh, she says, and this is a quote, guns are the only weapon that equalizes strength between the attacker and the attacked. It's the only time when the man's greater speed, strength um, and longer reach make no difference. If you pull the trigger first, you win. And she says, I'm all for strengthening the social contract. Um, so that fewer men create, commit rape, assault, or robbery. But until human nature has improved so radically that grievous bodily harm has passed from living memory, I don't understand why more feminists don't push for widespread gun ownership. Now, like we said, Molly, this isn't, you and I don't want to, you know, get into some pro anti-gun conversation, but framed from a feminist perspective, I think McArdle does make an interesting point. Right. And that's something that's echoed by conservative commentator Laura Ingram, who argues that gun ownership is the one area in which a woman is trying to make strides with men by having as many guns as he does, since men do own more guns in this country. It's the only area in which when a woman tries to become equal with men, feminists don't stand up and applaud. In fact, they criticize the woman. And just generally speaking, I think that we should point out that, um, you know, women are usually in favor of more gun control than men are. And then if you look at the demographic breakdown of gun ownership in the U.S., um, it's about 10 percent women and 90 percent men. So, yes, guns are in the hands of men far more often than women, even though, according to a 1999 survey from the National Shooting Sports Foundation, Gun retailers saw a 70% jump in female customers last year. So they're trying to make the case that there are more women buying guns. Yeah, and they are trying to market guns more to women. We've seen things like, you know, pink-handled guns, smaller guns, especially designed for women that don't have as much kickback. Fashionable holsters. Fashionable holsters. I've been looking for a fashionable holster for my for my Glock for so long. Um, that was a joke. Um Yes, I mean they're they're obviously trying to to push this. I mean, and I think Molly, this is one thing that we haven't mentioned yet. I mean, they want to move guns off the shelves, so of course they're going to target women. It's kind of like when we were talking in the podcast about women in cars. There comes there came a point where the male market with cars was so saturated that of course they needed two car households, and you know push uh, push cars to women and mothers and wives and whoever to get around. So that they could simply move more cars off the lot. So I think while, yes, I mean, there is this argument for protection at the same time, we can't forget that these are businesses that are marketing mm-hmm. towards us. 
So we've given a little bit of airtime to this one side that a gun is an equalizer. Uh, the flip side, we've referenced it before, is just that these gun makers are businesses, as Kristen said, and they're in the business of making you afraid. That the reason that you do think that a gun would protect you from attack is that you, there are gun ads that essentially show uh, a beaten up woman who says, where was, you know, where were the police? They're not going to protect me. Mm-hmm. I need a gun. Um, and you know, that may be the case that might happen, but it may not. So you're, you're, you're basically betting on fear. Yeah. Are we breeding a culture of fear? Which is, you know, not a great way to live. And also I would think something that, um, is not exactly in line with, uh, feminist ideology as well. Women don't need to live out of fear and, uh, live out of a victim mentality at all. We should, you know, be able to walk safely wherever we want to go, whether or not we're, um, you know, packing heat. Or not. So I think that leads us into this question of, you know, would it be better if uh, we just got rid of guns entirely? You mm-hmm. know, because a lot of, uh, like I mentioned, um, public survey polls usually show that women in general favor more gun control than men do. But some men would say that women are simply afraid of guns because they're afraid of men. Yes. Let's talk about this guy named Richard Poe. Uh, who wrote a book called The Seven Myths of Gun Control. And he talks about how, you know, guns are this ultimate male symbol. So the fact that women are uh, largely in favor of gun control is a sign of an anti-male agenda. Yes. I mean, at this point, we could get into symbolism of the guns symbolizing the phallic, uh, you know, all of these male-associated Images when it has to do with guns and, um, some men say that by, uh, by limiting their access to guns is a form of castration. Right. Um, and I mean, I don't want to get too into Poe's quotes because on the one hand, they seem just ridiculous, but I guess if you want to think about symbolism, it makes sense that, you know, they're saying, oh, if, if a gun makes a man a warrior and you take away his gun, have you emasculated him and weakened him so that you can be this Ral Ralph feminist who takes over the world. That's that's the quote taken to an extreme. He didn't say that. So that's more of a paraphrase. Yes, it was a bit of a paraphrase on my part. A paraphrase. But, Molly, I think as as kind of extreme as Poe's argument, at least framed in your words, mm-hmm. may sound, I do think that it brings us to the point that underscores the fact that no matter which side of the gun argument that you fall on, whether you're pro or anti gun control, um, it's still somehow framed in these gendered terms in which more gun control implies taking guns away from men and extended gun rights means enfranchising women because that's the way that it has been advertised and it has been debated and politicized up to this point. And I think by the fact that um, we, it keeps coming back to men versus women with guns um, and all of the implications with violence, who's the victim, who's the perpetrator, all of this, it only complicates the issue. Very uh, and in an already complex problem, you know, a complex topic to debate. Mm-hmm. So that's why at this point we want to hear from our esteemed listeners, gun owners, gun haters, gun who doesn't care about nothings. 
Uh, I can't wait Sharp to hear the third shooters, group. skeet shooters. Any Oakley wannabes. Water gun shooters. Let's hear your thoughts. Paintballers. Paintballers, yes. Let's hear your thoughts about this. Uh, MomStuff, HowStuffWorks.com is our address. And in the meantime, while you're typing up your frenzied email to that address, let's hear what some other people have written in. So I've got one from Marsha, and this one manages to merge our, our recent children's literature podcast and our tattoo podcast. Excellent. Two for the price of one. Marsha writes, I have lots of and enjoy both books and tattoos. Personally, I feel as though tattoos are works of self-expression to fit the ideals, preferences, and lives of those who they belong to. The ones I have were all thought out well in advance and represent things I feel strongly enough about to have in my body for the rest of my life. One is a stack of books. Here's here's the merge of the two. One is a stack of books on the outside of my leg, complete with my favorite authors represented. Another is a small snail with the word keep next to it on the inside of my right wrist. On the same leg is the stack of books I have Stargirl. You asked for influential literary feminists. Well, she is mine. I first read Stargirl by Jerry Spinelli when I was about 15. It's about a homeschool girl who gets put into public school. And <laughs> Thinking about me, Molly? It's my <laughs> memoir. Have you read Stargirl? I wrote Stargirl. <laughs> okay, sorry. It's about a homeschool girl who gets put into public school in the 10th grade. She has never been tainted by cliques and popularity of other girls in school, so she is wholly unique. It's an amazing story and made me want to change who I was to be more true to myself. It may not be child literature, more like young adult, but it definitely affected me in high school. And real quick, Marsha's reading list is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, 1984 by George Orwell, The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, and Anything She Can Get a Hold Of by Christopher Moore. Well, I have a reading list here from Katie to follow up on that. And... Katie's reading list has a theme. I like this. Um, she says, I've decided to tackle some books on marriage. My fiance and I both come from divorced families and we were unsure of marriage for a long time. But after five years of living together, we've decided to just go for it and see what all the fuss is about. I'm not really interested in books on how to have a great marriage, quote unquote, but stories from the trenches, so to speak, and maybe some thoughts on how to reconcile my ideas of what it means to be both a feminist and a wife. I just finished Committed by Elizabeth Gilbert, and I could really relate to her skepticism of marriage with a willingness to ultimately take the plunge. Next next up is Manhood for Amateurs by Michael Chabon for the male perspective, then Bad Mother by Islet Waldman, and then she has Cleaving by Julie Powell, and I Do But I Don't by Cammie Wickoff. Your Is Marriage a Good Investment podcast fit nicely into all of this, so thanks for that, and you're welcome. <laughs> so again, if you want to send us an email... The address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. If you have any thoughts you would like to send our way during the week, go ahead and head over to our Twitter. Head over to our Facebook. Oh, and we're putting more reading lists on Twitter and Facebook. Yes, we are. Essentially, you'll never be able to turn around and not see a reading list from us. So you'll have plenty of ideas for things to read on your summer vacations. I hope you have a summer vacation coming up. And you know what else you could read on your summer vacation is our blog, Stuff Mom Never Told You, which is, as always, located at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?